again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the show. My name is Jeff Kwame, your host and executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. This podcast comes to you thanks to the generosity of our friends at Mountainside Treatment Center in Canaan, Connecticut. Mountainside provides individualized clinical, medical, and wellness services to those struggling with substance use and mental health disorders. Each treatment plan is structured through collaboration with the client, their family, and healthcare professionals to offer every client their best chance at long-term recovery. Learn more about their programming at mountainside.com. On behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode, The Scope of Practice. In the first few months of this year, there have been about 40 mass shootings that have claimed a number of human lives, including the ones most publicized. King Supers in Boulder, Colorado with 10 victims, the Atlanta massage parlor killings that claimed eight lives, and most recently, the FedEx shootings in Indianapolis, which also ended with eight dead. For those listening in Connecticut, we remember the Hartford Distributor shooting that took eight of our residents, and we remain horrified by the unspeakable events that occurred at Sandy Hook School on December 14, 2012. It's really difficult for us to admit, but the work that we do to aid individuals with substance use disorders puts us at an elevated risk for violence in the workplace. The highly respected Journal of Substance Abuse Treatment presented evidence that more than 75% of people who seek treatment for SUDs have a history of violent behavior. There's also clear evidence that SUDs and violence have a strong and recurrent correlation. Certainly each of us recognize that substance use does not always produce violent behaviors and cannot be generally stated, but the risk is still evident. When you add the increased risks associated with mental health symptomatology or co-occurring disorders, the risk is amplified greater. We must do something to protect ourselves and the coworkers and clients that we serve. In the immortal words of Benjamin Franklin, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. This is not something that I relish talking about in all honesty. I wish we didn't have to, but expert input is absolutely necessary in this current climate. Our guest today is threat assessment and mitigation expert, Michael Clark. Michael has been a security protection and investigation specialist for over 30 years for clients that have ranged from celebrities, politicians, executives, and corporations. He has developed specialized expertise in risk management and mitigation by assessing situations in advance and de-escalating potentially violent encounters before they occur. His experience began as a field investigator for Travelers Insurance in a special investigations unit in South Central Los Angeles, and he currently has his own protection service. Michael is also one of the founding members of The Safer Solution, a company that develops and delivers effective training and support that makes entities safer by empowering members of your team to prevent, eliminate, and prevail against conflict and violent threats in the workplace. It is my pleasure to welcome my friend of 35 years, you believe that? 35 years? Michael Making Clark to the old. show. Mike, thanks for taking time to talk to us a bit. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for having me, Jeff. As we begin, I'd like to clarify just what we mean by workplace violence. It's a very broad term. What are some of the things that fall under that category, separate from active shootings? Well, obviously, an active shooter incident is the ultimatum of violence. So outside of that, I would say there's anything that could lead to an active shooter event, which could start with intimidation uh, or physical assaults, harassment, all the what I would call the building blocks getting there. It's not always just the random uh, active shooter that shows up at your office. There's these little steps or episodes that occur prior to an actual incident. 
So when you look at something like a, an active shooter situation incident or actual physical violence, there's generally a pattern that you can see building. Uh, yeah, most of the time. No, obviously every time that there may be a physical incident or intimidation at the office or harassment, that doesn't mean it's going to lead to an active shooter incident, but still it's disruptive to the work. It's disruptive to the employees and it creates a toxic work environment. So if you can nip it in the bud there, that's the better place to do it. Why let it keep growing or escalating by ignoring it? You know, the reality of the world that we live in today is, you know, occurrences of workplace violence seem to slow a bit during the pandemic, partly because people weren't at work. Uh, but we're starting to see those uh, number of incidents increase. What are some of the factors that are driving this increase? Well, like you said, it wasn't just regular people staying home from work. Active shooters stayed home from work as well. And work, ironically, they've said it before, and I'll say it again, work is the most dangerous place you can go to. It's a grim thought to think of it that way, but there are actually more active shooter incidents at people's employment than anywhere else. We hear about school shootings a lot, and the reason being is obviously it's horrific because you're dealing with children, and there's awesome. There, there's usually a body count that's higher because you've got 30 children, you know, locked in a room. Should an incident occur, so the media gloms onto that and is like, "Hey, another active shooter, children." It's a big thing. The reality is there are many more active shooter incidents at people's employment. It's just the body count isn't as high. And the media doesn't think is as sexy usually because it's not children. That's that's the reality. It's work has always been the place if you look through history as far as a lot of active shooter incidents. The Department of Labor estimates that nearly two million people annually are victim of non-fatal workplace violence, and that workplace violence accounts for nearly one thousand homicides per year. Uh, is it safe to say that most of these are preventable? Yeah, and I actually was, I think it's safe to say that number is actually probably lower, just not everything is reported as an active shooter incident, things like that. Uh, or it's not always related to the workplace, even though it is. It's definitely preventable. <clears throat> I would say a strong amount of time it is preventable, but the uh, the reality is, we often ignore the signs prior to it happening. And I actually created something called the domino theory where most active shooter incidents or workplace violence, it occurs not just as an anomaly. It's like a domino. If you've ever seen a row of dominoes go down, our key is we want you to notice the red flags prior to that last domino falling and an incident occurring. We always ignore it though, or I should say, most of us are ignoring it. When we see a red flag, we don't want to be bothered. We don't want to get involved. And so, and especially if it's not toward us. Okay, somebody has an issue with Joe at work. We're going to ignore it because <clears throat> he doesn't have an issue with me. The problem is, as things escalate, you could be a, a product of that violence. You could wind up being collateral damage. So we're always telling people, don't just sit back get involved early while the, before the last domino falls. What are some of the red flags that you talk of? Oh, well, in your industry especially, there are so many red flags, especially with your 
the population that you obviously deal with, you and your teams of people, uh, people that are consistently angry, people that are, this is going to be rare nowadays, people that are extreme in, in their political opinions. Know anyone like that? People that are extreme in their religious opinions. They're, any kind of extremism I look at as a red flag, whatever it is. I mean, you could be a, a passionate uh, baseball fan or something. That's great. But there's a level where you start becoming dangerous and you're attacking other people out in a parking lot, as we've, as we've seen in the past, because they, they're with a different, they cheer for a different team. So any type of extremism is dangerous. Obviously, people with mental illness, there's a lot of people running around that. Uh, mental illness, uh, drug abuse, uh, victimhood. You know, I'm describing what is such a big thing in our society right now is victimhood and people whose other opinions don't matter. It's just extremism. I'm right, you're wrong. Anything like that is escalating, escalating the issue. Um, people that have unreasonable expectations. I could just keep going and going. Uh, deteriorating physical and uh, mental abilities, people that are uh, hallucinating, people that hold on to grudges. Uh, when I think about what, what you guys do and you, the population you're dealing with, obviously people that are angry, sad, and depressed, people that are isolated or feel isolated. Uh, uh, and here's another one, sense of entitlement. We don't know anyone out in the world now that has a <laughs> I sense think I'm of afraid of everybody on my street right now. Right. I mean, unfortunately, it seems that way lately because when people ask me, what are the red flags? We actually provide them on our website, but and, and part of our training is to teach people to notice these red flags and not just dismiss them. But you're right. There's a we have a whole population with a sense of entitlement coupled with a lack of coping skills on top of it. Right. So when real events happen, they're not prepared for them and everything is magnified. Now take drugs. You're doing drugs on top of having a lack of coping skills. Things are going south. Everything is just, ma you know, it's magnified and how do and you feel hopeless and how do I get around this and everyone's against me? There's a lot of that. One of the things that, that when you're talking about prevention efforts is it would seem that in with any prevention effort whatsoever, understanding and assessment are the key initial efforts. Uh, from an overall perspective, what are some of the factors that you uh, attempt to understand and assess to help organizations or teach them to do? Well, again, obviously every organization is different and, and it depends on the population that they're dealing with. An office that just deals with, you know, an insurance office and they just deal with each other and they don't deal with an outside population, we're going to treat that differently than if, if it's a UPS uh, situation or a, uh, a store, a retail situation where they have the public coming to deal with them all the time. But we're looking at physical, initially we're looking at physical security controls uh, and what other security protocols to make their people safe. And when I say that, I'm not talking about you know, check in when you go into work and identify yourself, things like that. I'm talking, are there any uh, protocols and how to deal with each other? Uh, is there a code of conduct for the organization? Uh, what, in, in their particular business and who they're dealing with, what kind of safety protocols are in place? Are there, if, if they're dealing with a dangerous population, 
Are they using a team approach where they're coming up with, okay, we have to meet with so-and-so today. Are we going to take a witness and a team member with us? Things like that. How are they, what is their sense of awareness around situations? Do they understand what to look for as far as red flags? Those are the kind of protocols we look at. It depends. Everyone's different. You know, my field in the substance use and co-occurring disorder treatment, the overall nature of the work and some of the difficulties that our clients experience elevate our risk. Um, it's certainly not simply because of the correlation between substance use and mental health disorders and violence, but also these exter- external factors. We've got things like uh, some of the folks that we serve may have gang membership, may have uh, angry drug dealers that they may owe money to that can come to our facility and things. Do you, uh, what are some of those other things that you would see just in general? Well, obviously one of the biggest things that we talk about uh, at the Safer Solution and we're training people is to have a heightened sense of awareness or, or as we call it, situational awareness. And obviously if you're out dealing with that population and it's an unpredictable population, unpredictable behavior, you, know, you never want to let your guard down, right? It, regardless of how long you've known this person, if you know they have a history of abuse or they have uh, unpredictable behavior, the key is to be situationally aware at all times and not let your guard down, number one. Obviously, be aware of red flags uh, and uh, use security protocols or safety protocols, if you want to use that better, uh, while you're dealing with that po- population. As far as external factors outside of them, who benefits? If somebody was to hurt you, who be- who is going to benefit from that? Like you said, is it going to be a drug dealer? Is it going to be a gang member? Because you're taking a person of their that they were benefiting from, whether they were selling drugs to or whatever, you're taking that away from them. So who benefits? I would be very... I would take any threats seriously that are conveyed to you from them. Often the problem is we've gotten so used to the society of people threatening this and threatening that, we don't take it seriously anymore until it's too late. So obviously I would consider always, if, so, if somebody is going to hurt me from this transaction, who benefits? Why would they benefit from hurting me? So it does really come from inside and from outside. We have to be uh, vigilant at all times. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's what my guess is. Absolutely. One of the best things I tell people is put your phone down. Put your phone away. Everybody walks around like zombies looking at their phone all the time. You can't be, you got people getting hit by a car that weighs 4,000 pounds driving down the street because they're looking at their phone. You cannot be situationally aware and staring at your phone. And part of that is when you're talking to people, people have lost the art of listening and the actual being aware of what's going on around them. You can't, again, you can't be safe if you are not aware so while you're dealing with your clients while you're dealing with the public it's always best to be aware and not distracted so let's talk about training you know many organizations as you and i were talking before we started recording many organizations use a standardized online platform to kind of orient their employees to workplace safety um, from one provider or another and it gives me pause for a couple of reasons first I have no idea what the qualifications of of the person is who developed that curriculum. Um, I have no idea who did that or what they know or don't know. Um, And and I certainly believe that this is an area where experience matters. Um, And secondly, I'm all for exposure-based or informational training as a first step, as an initial step. But I can't imagine that to be sufficient enough 
to prepare an organization for a dangerous scenario. Your thoughts on that? Ironically, that's the reason we built the Safer Solution is uh, my partners had come to me and said, listen, there's a lot of really bad training out there. We always hear, you know, run, hide, fight, right? Mm -hmm. That's a little bit simplistic. And we noticed that the people that were out there training it really didn't have direct experience with violence or mitigating violence or prevailing over it. So the combination of our experience is a little bit different than you're going to get at, with normal instructors. I myself come from an executive protection background. I've had a bodyguard agency for about 25 years. I've met and overcome more violence than I'd like to think about. Meanwhile, my other partners are uh, Navy SEAL. I don't think I need to say anything more about that as far as prevailing over violence. And another partner is uh, former Delta Forces. And in Delta, he was an assault troop medic who actually learned how and learned and trained others how to save people in the field from uh, needless bleeding and uh, other serious wounds in combat while he was dealing in the middle of a firefight and whatnot. So our combined different experiences in, in dealing with violence is what brought the whole team together and provided the curriculum to teach people. As far as I agree with you, if you're gonna do some what we call check the box training, watch some video for five minutes, and say, oh, yeah, I'm ready. I've been trained for an active shooter. Our attitude was that's a waste of time, and that actually puts people in danger. Uh, our approach is a, li more, a little bit more advanced than run, hide, fight, but it's still along similar principles of learning how to do a proper bar barricade, learning how to evacuate yourself and others safely and properly, and it's also about recovery. A lot of shootings and active shooter incidents over the years People have died needlessly from loss of blood because people didn't even know how to do a tourniquet, things like that. So we believe in teaching you those principles. We also believe, which is a lot of my part of the program, is how to notice the red flags before they happen. Again, the domino theory. Let's reduce and survive violent incidents before they even happen by getting involved prior. And part of that is being situationally aware and then what I call a duty to warn as opposed to, yeah, this is going to happen, I think, but I'm going to stay out of it because I don't want to get involved. That doesn't work anymore. We need people to actually feel like they have a duty to get involved and warn others and hopefully prevent violence. Yeah, the idea of duty to warn is not um, uncommon or unusual to the folks that that work in this field because we have laws around that if a client is making threats or there's a fear for someone's safety. So applying it to a different situation should be uh, a natural transition. Absolutely, because it may not be just uh, your population that you're dealing with for work. It could be a coworker. It could be anyone that has an issue that you've seen that you're like, ah, I don't want to get involved with this. I've got enough on my plate. That may be worth your time later. Uh, and as far as I agree, if you're just going to take training and not do anything with it, that doesn't do anything. We're a big believer in practice. Whether you take, whether you have our team come out and do training with you in person or you take it online, we expect you to practice with it. We expect the organization to practice. You know I mean, that'd be like taking a piano lesson and play, pretending you're going to be Mozart later, but you didn't practice. Everything's about practice and drills. 
one of the things that's jumping out to me that's not being said but is clear is the ability to kind of keep your wits about you when it hits the fan. Uh, clinicians in our field are, are trained really well to manage emotions, manage angry clients and things of that nature. It's certainly raised to a different level when there's an active shooter situation, but that skill comes in handy and it's probably necessary to be able to make any effective safety precautions. And I agree. I agree. The Well, we call it the freeze factor. And what's funny is we've even demonstrated in person I'll be given uh, a presentation, and Ken, the uh, Navy SEAL partner, great guy, would come in during my presentation and act like an angry shooter. And you would hear all these guys talking, oh, yeah, I'm gonna, I know what I do. Everybody has these fantasies in their head, right? <laughs> I'd take a desk and throw it at them or whatever. But we've noticed without practice, people freeze. Their natural inclination is to freeze, which I think has changed as uh, man has gotten civilized over the past 20,000 years because it, we logic things out now. And something doesn't make sense and we freeze. It doesn't make sense that there's a person who's trying to kill me right now. It doesn't make sense to you, but it may make sense to that person. So instead of going with our natural instincts to, to flee or fight, we just freeze. And that, I think, has almost become who we've become as a people we have to start training our, ourselves to listen to that, that reptilian brain that's saying, get moving. And we'll run this exercise a couple of times. And sometimes even the second time, people are still locked in. They're frozen. We want to break that. We want to break that and get them moving to safety. If and they have to fight, we'll teach them that as well. Or barricade, whatever it is. But the key is to get moving. And I think that uh, that's where practical training comes in, where you're actually doing it because you're creating that that muscle memory, so to speak, that when this happens, this is what I do. That doesn't come naturally, like you said. It comes from training. There is no rationality to find it's and it's respond rather than react. Because if you react, you're not in control. If you respond, you've planned it. Correct. And again, it's about practice. It's like you know martial arts or anything. If you if you just did one lesson, you're not going to be that good. But you keep practicing, you're going to get better at it, and you'll re and you will respond better to any situation like that. I'm I'm certainly going to assume that developing a plan for any organization is not as simple as a cut and paste process. Hey, we're just going to put this this in there. There may be is there an initial framework that you kind of work from and then add details to. Well, uh, yes, there is. What it, what we usually do is, uh, depending on the organization, how big they are, we usually want to create a threat management team approach with them. So they can, you take our training, but then we want you to go back to your particular organization and style it or, for lack of a word, make it yours for your organization. Obviously, every company already has safety protocols. And we, we have been asked multiple times to look at those and see what could be added, what should be taken out, whatever. It's rare that I take anything out, but I usually add a few things. But we, we usually want a team approach when it comes to employee safety. And so, and that's going to be obviously physical controls and safety protocols that you're doing with, and training, obviously. So safety protocols, physical security controls, 
and training would all be a factor. When you talk about training and things, are you, are you looking at a situation where certain individuals have certain responsibilities that automatically this is what they're going to do? It, it, well, that's part of a threat management team yeah. is you are going to delegate certain duties. We tell people, even an active shooter training, that if, let's say there's a barricade or something you're building, somebody should form a team member right away. So somebody who's delegating who's doing what to eliminate the confusion. Hence, you would do that in the drills as well. We want you, to, even if you're doing the online training, we still want you to do the drills in person so that it gets more efficient. I mean, if you have five or 10 people pull, putting a barricade together up against the door, it's much more efficient if someone's directing people how to do what. And it's good to know that in advance. You know, Jerry, you know, Jerry from, you know, the uh, mail room is going to be in charge of this, that, or the other thing. And he's going to tell you this. And meanwhile, someone else is going to be looking at other possible exits that may be available. You want to get a division of labor, for lack of a better word? For sure. You so when we that. look at uh, the training helps provide confidence to individuals. And we recognize that in leadership positions, which Jerry from the mailroom would be in a leadership position, if that's what, in that situation, that confidence gives others confidence. It, it, it can Absolutely. help bring the emotionality down in a really difficult situation. Well, one of the things I'm always preaching, and this also goes into de-escalation uh, techniques, if you're trying to calm someone down who's already elevated and angry and, and about to be violent, believe in calm equals calm. Emotion escalates emotion. So you want people to be calm. We even teach people during practice and during our, our seminars, breathe. Stop and breathe. Take a half second, bring in your breath, exhale, move forward. Because if everybody's charged up and running around and adrenalized, it's just going to be a confusing mess and that becomes even more dangerous. So, yeah, we believe in calming the emotion. Interestingly, those that work in our field are pretty good at that, again, in much less stressful situations. But it provides a good opportunity to expand those skills into different situations. So they're starting out with, with a leg up, so to speak. Absolutely. Anyone who can, who can think in a calm way amid chaos already has an advantage in any chaotic situation. And there's a few more chaotic situations than an active shooter. You may have touched on this. Um, matter of fact, you have, but I want to ask again, what separates the safer solution from other training providers? Well, again, I, I would say it's our different backgrounds that all had to deal with violence in one way or the other, well, whether it was in combat, whether it was in training, or whether it was in the private sector uh, on behalf of clients. Um, and we actually had different approaches. And obviously, if you're in combat, you're not de-escalating the violent situation. Whereas I would be dealing with uh, situations on behalf of my clients as a bodyguard where I couldn't you know, shoot people in the street that were presenting a threat to my client. So it was always better for me to de-escalate. Or in other situations, uh, my partners, Ken and Ted, they had to actually get physically involved uh, against obviously lethal forces. So that, that would be the key difference is our backgrounds and the way we approach the curriculum. And one of the key things that we did was we were going around and presenting to clients, you know, it's not cheap, 
to have the three of us come to you for four hours of training. So we decided we needed to put this thing online. Mm. And that's luckily being in LA, we were able to hire actors and cameramen and all this because nobody likes to sit there and read for hours and hours and hours uh, as far as training. So we put it all on video so that people can enjoy the training. It's exciting. It's interesting. And that made it a little bit different than what's being provided as well, is that we actually uh, used a lot of actors and a lot of insight in what we're doing there. You know, I'm lucky to have kind of seen you at work a little bit the last time I was in Los Angeles and we were going to settle in to watch some football on TV and you get a call about a, a private corporation, a threat against um, a management employee. And I just watched how you called people, you called the local police to make them aware. You had kind of everything in place that you could deal with it. Hopefully it wouldn't escalate. Um, but it was really about planning and preparation more than anything else. And, and it was interesting to kind of see that. Yeah, a lot of people don't call me and say, I'm having a great day. I need somebody to assess a threat. It's usually you know. somebody, we think somebody's trying to kill me, so can you help us out? Or we're going to fire Joe on Friday, and it's Tuesday, and we know he's been at the range a lot and talking to his gun. So I get a lot of those calls. But uh, I enjoy it because, you know, I'm helping people, and helping people stay alive, you know, feels great. The, and obviously everything is a process. And, and one of the things that we always explain to people is time is a factor. And in these type of incidents, it's not your friend. You're always working against the clock. So that's key to get as much information as possible. And you're ma matching that information against the time you have before a potential incident. So it's always data versus the clock when, we, when we're working. So the Safer Solution offers an online introductory, for lack of a better term, uh, program that is accessible for a very, very reasonable price. And if if possible, you and your partners will go out. So it's a full service uh, safety and security organization for training. Um, how can people get in touch with you? That's easy. The easiest part would probably be just to go to our website, which is thesafersolution.com. Uh, and SAFER actually stands for, it's an acronym we came up with, to stand for Sense, Assess, Formulate, Eliminate, and Recover from the Threats. We love acronyms. Yeah, I get it. We live in a world <laughs> of acronyms. Field, we love them. <laughs> it makes us feel smarter than we are. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so I'll make sure that uh, when we market this that we put that out there as well. Any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with? No, uh, other than that, I mean, I don't, I'm not that guy who likes to give toll-free numbers, but I'll give you one. It's <laughs> if, if people don't want to go to the Saver Solution website, which I recommend, uh, they can also call us at 833-877-2337. Mike, hey, I appreciate your time. Maybe I'll see you for, for football this year. Who knows? Yeah, um, so I think we're headed to Vegas for football. <laughs> and. Uh, Thanks for spending some time with us. Hey, my pleasure, Jeff, anytime. Uh, that's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like, once again, thank Michael Clark of The Safer Solution for joining us. And I hope this discussion has motivated you to think about how we protect ourselves, those we serve, and our coworkers. We again extend our gratitude to Mountainside Treatment Center for their generous support of the program. And we here at the CCB appreciate everyone who's listening. Don't forget to follow us on Podbeans, iTunes, 
or your favorite podcast application. As I've said many times, I listen on Amazon, but we'll catch you next time.